For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. And uh, some of you are starting uh, a practice commitment period together. So welcome for that. This is an opportunity for us to be together and support Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and Sazen. So thank you for joining. and for those of you who are not formally in the practice commitment period, also you're very much welcome to attend any of the talks during this time in Zazen, um, virtually or here in person. So this is wonderful. I see people from Michigan and California and And different, oh, in New Mexico. Anyway, so we're all here. And the theme, the Dharma theme for this eight-week practice period is the Vimalakirti Sutra. So those of you in the practice period formally have access to that text, but uh, you don't need to, you don't need to read any of it particularly. Those of you in the practice period will be studying some part of it. But I want to give an introduction today to this sutra and talk some about the first couple of chapters. So the Malakirti Sutra is an old Mahayana Bodhisattva text. And it's about this character named Vimalakirti. Don't worry about pronouncing it. There won't be a test. But Vimalakirti was a great awakened layperson, layman, who um, is said to have lived at the time of Shakyamuni Buddha, 2,500 years ago, relatively, in northern India. And... um, he was quite a dude. Uh, so, so uh, this, so the main thing to say about him, and I'll come back to this, is that he uh, lived in in this city called Varshali, and he was in the middle of all kinds of stuff in the world. He was active in the world in lots of ways. As some of you are in Chicago or wherever you are in the country. So uh, I'm hoping we'll have some time for discussion questions, but I want to look at parts of chapters one and two at least. So this this sutra starts off as uh, all Bodhisattva Mahayana sutras do. Uh, Thus I have heard at one time. Uh, the Lord Buddha was in residence at in different places, but here in the garden of Amrapali in the city of Vaishali, attended by a great gathering of bhikshus. There were 8,000 
all arhats, perfected beings, free from impurities, and so on. Uh, and it, spent, it's, it goes into this wonderful assembly that was there to hear the Buddha. So the first chapter is about the Buddha, not about the Malakirti particularly. And just to read little bits of the text, and we're using Robert Thurman's wonderful translation. Um, so, um, so he's talking about all of the bodhisattvas, all of the bodhisattvas who were there. He says their mindfulness. The sutra says that mindfulness, intelligence, realization, meditation, incantation, and eloquence all were perfected. They were free of obscurations and emotional involvements, living in liberation without impediment. Totally dedicated through the transcendences of generosity, subdued, unwavering, and sincere. More, uh, and sincere morality, tolerance, effort, meditation. So these are the transcendent practices. They turned the irreversible wheel of the Dharma. They were stamped with the insignia of signlessness, which is one of the basic principles of Buddhism. It goes on to talk about how they had penetrated the profound principle of relativity destroy the persistence of, of instinctual mental habits underlying all convictions concerning finitude and infinitude. So they saw how all things were related and were not caught up in ultimate or the, in, in nihilism or in the absolute. And then at one point it goes on to talk about all the different bodhisattvas who are there and are named. And this is, you know, some of us are doing the uh, chanting monthly, the flower ornament on the Tamsaka Sutra. Um, and in that sutra, as well as many Mahayana sutras, there are names and names and names of different bodhisattvas and Buddhas who are hanging out or, or uh, sometimes... Uh, Kings and, and so forth. But this one starts with Samadarshana, Samadarshana, Samadhi, Vikuritaraja, Dharma, Dharmeshvara, Dharma Ketu, and so forth. There's a long list, including Avalokiteshvara, our friend Kanzeon, Mahastam Aprapta, who's the companion of Avalokiteshvara, who exhibits great strength. And others, including Ramajala, Ratna, Ratna Dandin, um, also Maitreya and Manjushri. Uh, so, anyway, notable bodhisattvas. And I mentioned that partly just to uh, emphasize that Malakirti is not one of these great bodhisattvas with it, who is it appears in lots of texts. Uh, as far as I know, aside from in from this sutra. He's mentioned only once amongst a list of 
people in an assembly in, in one of the other uh, Mahayana sutras, not one of the major ones, uh, or what we think of as the major ones. So the Malakirti um, is considered to be not an historical person, although some people thought he was. Anyway, that's getting ahead of the story. Um, uh, But, uh, so there's this assembly, and they're in front of the Buddha. And uh, so I want to talk about Buddha Kshetras. This is Buddha fields. And in classical Buddhism, classical Mahayana Buddhism, it is said that whenever a Buddha awakens, there is constellated around them a Buddha field. The land itself becomes a field of Buddhist practice filled with bodhisattvas and other wonderful practitioners. This idea of a Buddha field is, is very important in Mahayana Buddhism. Buddha Kshetra is the Sanskrit word. So we have some sense of this from Ehe Dogen Zenji, who was the founder of Soto Zen, who we talk about a lot, or I do, um, who says in uh, one of the things we chant, we won't chant it today, but we will sometime in the uh, coming weeks of this practice period. It's a section called Gigi Uzamai, the Self-Fulfillment Samadhi. And this is in Bendawa, in uh, how to engage the way. It's the, it's really Dogen's first writing, long writing, about the meaning of Zazen. Some of us have been looking at Fukan Zazengi, which is a much shorter text, and uh, Dogen may have written that uh, initially, but, he, but the versions we have were uh, edited later. At any rate, in this Bindawa talk about inserting uh, the way, literally. There's this sentence that is my uh, favorite sentence from Dogen and the one that I've puzzled over most for decades. Dogen says, when one displays the Buddha mudra with one's whole body and mind, so we know mudras like this or like this or like this, but this, when one displays the Buddha position, the Buddha gesture, the Buddha posture, with one's whole body and mind sitting upright in this samadhi, in this sazen practice, even for a short time, everything in the entire Dharma world, called the phenomenal world, becomes Buddha mudra, and all space in the universe completely becomes awakened. So this is uh, very counter to our usual way of thinking. When a Buddha awakens, Everything around him or her awakens. It's hard to see how that works. It's hard to think about that in our usual way of objective thinking. But this is what this is what uh, a Buddha field is, and this is a big issue in this first chapter of the Vimalakirti Sutra. 
So um, it is sometimes said that there are pure and impure Buddha fields. The largest school or branch of Buddhism in, in Japan and in much of East Asia is the pure, pure land Buddhism. Jodo Shu or Jodo Shinshu, uh, it developed around the same time as Dogen, as one of the Bamiyu schools in the 13th century. <clears throat> and this is based on this idea of pure lands. And the, the, the pure land in East Asia is uh, about the Amida Buddha, or Amitabha in Sanskrit. So these pure land schools in Japan, the main practice, not necessarily the only practice, but the main practice is just chanting the name of Buddha, Namida Buddha, Namida Buddha, and, and over and over again sometimes. And there's different understandings in pure land about how that works and what that is. But uh, the idea is that Amida Buddha, when it became Amida Buddha, immediately constellated this pure land, this beautiful pure land. In some branches of pure land Buddhism in Japan, they chant this as they're, as they're dying or in hopes of going there after they pass away in this world. Or they, or they chant this uh, regularly in, hope, in, in similar, with similar hopes. Uh, so I'm going to give away the, the um, this is a spoiler alert, uh, the, the closing chapter of the Himalakirti Sutra reveals that uh, actually Himalakirti is uh, from a different pure land in, in, a, in a galaxy far, far away or whatever. Um, this is called the land, the Buddha land of Abhirati. And this isn't from Shakyamuni or Amitabha, this is from Aksobhya. So apparently, according to the, this last chapter, the Malakirti practiced assiduously in that pure land for a long time before Sheridan Vaishali in Shakyamuni's time. Anyway, uh, that's not one of the assigned chapters for this practice period, which is, you know, to, just for your information. Um, so, but the issue in the first chapter is uh, one of the Arhat practitioners, one of the disciples of Buddha, who was not formally a Bodhisattva practitioner, was concerned because Shakyamuni had created this Buddha field that we're in. So we're all in Shakyamuni's Buddha field. We still talk. We still talk about it, even though it's twenty-five hundred years since Shakyamuni passed away. But um, this disciple, this Arhat disciple named Shariputra, is one of the ten great disciples historically of Shakyamuni Buddha. Had a question. So, first, one of the one of the uh, lay people from Uchadi. Uh, a young uh, devotee asked the Buddha to um, what is the Bodhisattva's purification of the Buddha field? Please explain to all of us the Bodhisattva's purification of the Buddha field. 
So the Buddha said, uh, noble ones, a, a Buddha field of bodhisattvas is a field of living beings. Why so? A bodhisattva embraces a Buddha field to the same extent that he causes the development of living beings. He embraces the Buddha field to the same extent that living beings become disciplined. He embraces the Buddha field to the same extent that through entrance into a Buddha field, living beings are introduced to the Buddha wisdom, Buddha knowledge. He embraces a Buddha field to the same extent that through entrance into the Buddha field, living beings increase their their holy spiritual faculties. Why so? Noble, noble child, a Buddha field of bodhisattva springs from our aims, from the aims of living beings. So this is uh, important in all context. This idea of the aims of Buddha, the aims of living beings, and bodhicitta is, which we've spoken of here, is the line that aspires to awakening, that is concerned with awakening. Anyway, um, so he goes on about this, and it's available for people to practice spiritual read. Um, but then at some point, and, it's, it, and it makes an excuse for him, for Shariputra, who is this who is the uh, disciple of Buddha, who is later in the sutra, a kind of proxonite in lots of ways, because of, for, for ostensibly not being a Bodhisattva. But mag magically influenced by the Buddha, it says, the Venerable Shariputra had this thought, if the Buddha field is pure only to the extent that the mind of the Bodhisattva is pure, then when Shakyamuni Buddha was engaged in the career of bodhisattvas, his mind must have been impure. Otherwise, how could this Buddha field appear so impure? So, I don't know exactly what was going on historic historically back then. I mean, there was obviously there were wars, because there seems to always be wars. They're not necessary in all Buddha fields, but anyway, and there's all kinds of things that we know are going on now. Um, that might lead us to think that somehow this is not a pure Buddha field. So there's some Buddha fields are pure and some are impure, uh, according to this. And Shari Kutra had a question about it. How could there be um, school shootings and and assault rifles available everywhere? And, and uh, how could there be... Uh, uh, people persecuted and uh, people of the wrong color killed by police and so forth and so on. All the things that we see and a massive inequality of, of resources and so forth. I mean, you all can, and, and climate breakdown and, and big tornadoes that were, like, that were coming through Chicago area. Uh, was that last night? Yeah, before. Anyway, um, how could there be for, yeah, well, so enhanced by climate damage, how could these things 
be if if Shakyamuni was a pure bodhisattva? This is the question. Why does this Buddha feel seem so impure? So Shariputra was asking this. And um, then this strange thing happens. So the Buddha knew what, what Shariputra was thinking, because he understands these things. And he said, what do you think, Shariputra? Is it because the sun and moon are impure that those blind from birth do not see them? Or when there's a storm, we don't see the sun and the moon. Is that uh, because the Buddha field is impure? And then there's this event. The Lord Buddha touched the ground of this billion-world galactic universe with his big toe. You know, there are images of the Buddha, and this, his big toe doesn't seem to be particularly special. I mean, the other things are special about him. He has a top knot. And anyway, there's, there, there are many, there are 32 physical signs of the Buddha, but I don't think the big toe is one of them. But anyway, um, the Buddha touched the ground of this billion-world galactic universe with his big toe. Suddenly, it was transformed into a huge mass of precious jewels, a magnificent array of many hundreds of thousands of clusters of precious gems. And it resembled the universe of the Tathagata Ratnavyuha called Ananta Guna Ratnavyuha, uh, which was a wonderful, pure, beautiful pure land. And everyone in the entire assembly is filled with wonder, each perceiving themselves seated on a throne of jeweled lotuses. So this beautiful pure land, no worries, no persecution, no war. Then the Buddha said to the venerable Shariputra, Shariputra, do you see the splendor of the virtues of the Buddha field? Shariputra replied, I see it, Lord. Here before me is a display of splendor such as I never before heard of or beheld. Then the Buddha said, Shariputra, this Buddha field is always thus pure, but the Tathagata makes it appear to be spoiled by many faults. In order to bring about the maturity of inferior living beings. That's us. For example, Shariputra, the gods of this Triestrimsha heaven, all take their food from a single precious special. And he goes on about how it is in the pure land. Um, and then um, Well, let's see, when this splendor of the beauty of virtues of the Buddha field shone forth, 84,000 beings conceived the spirit of unexcelled perfect awakening, and 500, 500 Lachavi youths from this town Lachavi, where this happened, who had accompanied the young Lachavi Ratnakara, who had asked the question initially, all attained the conformative tolerance of ultimate truth and birthlessness, which I'm going to come back to. 
Then the Lord withdrew his miraculous power. He lifted his toe. And at once the Buddha field was restored to its usual appearance. Oh, then both men and gods who subscribed to the disciple vehicle thought, alas, all constructed things are impermanent. Indeed. So, um, this is the this culminating event of this first chapter, and what it implies is that, and this is difficult for us, I think, and I don't, you know, I don't know if I completely believe it, but that, myself, but that it's how we see things that makes them impure. Now, of course, that doesn't help the the people who are that siren is moving towards. We need help, and it doesn't help. Doesn't fix all the things that are that I mentioned that are problems in our world, but it points to this sense of our participation in this, in the purity or impurity of our Buddha field. One of the things that the Buddha mentions there is that when they saw this pure Buddha field, and they saw the way that our world can be, built with gems and so forth, is there imagery, they realize the, what in Sanskrit is called Anupadaka Dharma Shanti. I love, this is my favorite Sanskrit term. I've talked about it before. Some of you have heard me talk about it. Shanti means patience or tolerance. Dharma here just means things, all the phenomenal world. Anupadaka means ungraspability or unknowability. So this is the uh, Malakirti's inconceivability teaching. This is an important part of this sutra, is to is immersion in the in the inconceivable. And it's uh, it comes about realizing it comes about through the patience or tolerance with the ungraspability of things. Or dharmas usually is, is translated as plural, is usually translated as things. It just means events. So, you know, there's no, there are not really any things in this room. All of the quote-unquote things we think of as dead objects are actually alive because the world is alive. So, uh, but I'll come back to another part of the direction to the practice But this basic teaching that to patience with, tolerance of, awareness of, that we can't get a hold of, of anything. That everything is ineffable. Everything is ungraspable. This is a basic teaching of the Nalakriti Sutra. Um, so this, so I, I want to get to chapter two because that's when the Nalakirti appears, and that's very relevant to our practice. But just to say a little more about this, um, about this inconceivability, the sutra combines 
two strands of the Mahayana. The Madhyamaka, which we have a study group, some uh, people here are studying, is uh, it, primarily about emptiness teaching, but also the emptiness of emptiness. So, David Ray, maybe you can announce the next uh, meeting of that at, during the announcements. Um, so, the great, uh, our great ancestor, Nagarjuna, was a great uh, spokesperson for that. Uh, so that's the middle way, or the teaching of emptiness. But the other part of this sutra is that from the uh, Avatamsaka Sutra, and then the Huayan, Huayan is the Chinese word of saying Avatamsaka, the Flower Ornament Sutra, which is this uh, magical display of all the kinds of things that that people saw when Buddha put his toe down. He didn't even have to put his whole foot down, he just just his big toe. Uh, and um, so this is uh, this kind of amazing, miraculous teaching of the splendor of all things. And it's very much in the background of Soto Zen. Some of you like Hongsha, who I translated cultivating the empty field. He's a, he's, uh, we could say that he's a high-end Buddhist. And Dongshan is the founder of Soto or Sadong Zen in China, was uh, actually one of the Huayan or Tamsaka ancestors. But in this sutra, it puts together this sense of emptiness, this sense of no-thingness. Emptiness doesn't mean nothingness. It means that no-thing no is 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 empty of thinness, of being a separate thing. You could just say relativity. We're all interrelated. Intimately, intimately interrelated. Everybody in this room, everybody who's in this room through the uh, through the screen is over here in terms of us seeing it, but or here, but um, everybody who's joining us virtually and everybody who's been in this room or been in this sangha or will be in this sangha, all are intimately interrelated. This is the teaching of relativity or emptiness. And then the Avatamsaka, the Hawaiian teaching, is this teaching of inconceivability that how we, that we can't conceive of how wonderful the world is. And that is not denying climate damage and wars and fascist politicians and all the other uh, ills that beset us. Um, so this is a tr tricky business. And I want us to study the Malakirti Sutra to see how we can benefit from seeing things in these ways. how that can support us. So uh, that's uh, a little bit about this uh, ultimate teaching about the Pradhika Dharma Shanti. But I do want to get to chapter two a little bit, and, and I'll be talking about chapter one and two again tomorrow. And if you have questions, that'll inspire where I focus on it tomorrow, Monday evening. And we'll be talking about all of this wonderful sutra. Uh, but 
Um, chapter two is just to introduce you to this dude from Alakirti, who lived in this great city of, of Vaishali, where the Buddha appeared in the first chapter. And uh, so, you know, this is relevant for our, for our Sangha because we're practicing in a big city in this world, doing all kinds of interesting things. We have teachers and psychologists, academics and attorneys and social workers and martial arts teachers and all kinds of people here in this room. It's amazing. And all of them doing the Buddha work, all of you, and the people online too, doing the Buddha work in this world. This is a non-residential lay sangha. So there's this whole issue of monastic Buddhism and non-residential Buddhism. One of the questions about American Buddhism. But I, I moved, to, I relocated from San Francisco Bay Area, where there were Buddhist teachers on every street corner to, to Chicago, because um, there weren't as many teachers here. And now we have this wonderful sangha. And Malakirti is an interesting figure for us to consider. Uh, there are ways in which maybe he's not a model for us, but there are ways in which he is. So, uh, to consider how how we practice in the world and help awaken beings and help unfold our own awakening together, together, as Sangha. Malkirti is an interesting, interesting character to consider. Uh, so, so part of the Malakirti, uh who he was, um, he was very wealthy. He was a lay person. He was uh, immersed in the world. I'll, I'll just read a few passages here. His wealth was inexhaustible for the purpose of sustaining the poor and the helpless. He observed pure morality in order to protect the immoral. He maintained tolerance and self-content in order to reconcile beings who were angry, cruel, violent and brutal. He blazed with energy in order to inspire people who were lazy. He maintained concentration, mindfulness, and meditation in order to sustain the mentally troubled. He attained decisive wisdom in order to sustain the foolish. So, you know, we all have relationships to all of that. Um, He entered all kinds of worldly realms. He made his appearance in fields of sport and in casinos. But he was always he was always there to his aim was always to mature those people who were attached to games and gambling. He fashion he visited the fashionable um, philosophical and new age teachers. He had always kept unswerving loyalty to the Buddha. 
He understood the mundane and transcendental sciences and esoteric practices. He had always took pleasure in the delights of the Dharma. He mixed in all crowds, yet he was respected as foremost of all in each of them. He was honored as a businessman among businessmen because he demonstrated the priority of the Dharma. He was honored as the landlord among landlords because he renounced the aggressiveness of ownership. So some relevant examples. He was compatible with ordinary people because he appreciated the excellence of ordinary merits. He was honored as the among Indras, as the Indra among Indras, creator deities, because he showed them the temporality of their lordship. So, um, so this is some background about who this guy was. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the, the drama of the sutra that we will unfold at this, that, at that time, out of the very skill in liberative techniques, the Malakirti manifested himself as if sick. To inquire after his health, the king, the officials, the lords, all, all many people came to ask after his health. And and he, and he talked about health. He said it is like a, a cloud cloud being characterized by turbulence and dissolution. He was talking about this world. Um, Oh, oh, now this is about the body, the human body, his body that got sick. He says, um, this like reflection being the image of former actions, just like an echo being dependent on conditioning. And it's like a cloud characterized by turbulence and dissolution. Like a flash of lightning being unstable and decaying every moment. The body is onerous, being the product of a variety of conditions. So this is kind of starts the drama of this very dramatic sutra that Dimalakirti was ill. So I didn't include in the in the uh, information for the PCP, the third and fourth chapter, but basically what happens is Buddha said, asked his disciples to go call on Dimalakirti because he's ill and he's sick. And when they say he's ill and sick, it means he's really ill. He's like, you know, um, maybe on his deathbed or something. And one by one, all of the great bodhisattvas, all of the great disciples of the Buddha, all the great bodhisattvas, and this is in chapters uh, three and four that you're welcome to read, but we're not focusing on for this practice commitment period. They all say, oh, I don't want to go. I don't want to go see the Malakirti. The last time I saw him, he came by when I was giving a discourse on, you know, whatever their specialty was in terms of practice. 
and he just threw them away. He just, you know, shoved them up. And so everybody's intimidated by the Molokirti. So anyway, this, that's kind of background setting for this sutra that we're going to be working with in this practice period. The Malakirti goes into all the worldly realms and is unafraid and uses his, his uh, experience there to help beings, to help awaken beings. So I could keep uh, laughing, but I think I'll stop there and um, covered a lot of material, and I'm going to go back over it again, as I said, tomorrow evening. But does anybody have comments, questions? Yes, Paula. So when you were talking about the Buddha fields, and I, I think this is what was said, that when a Buddha creates a Buddha field, it is pure or impure, depending on the attention of the beings within the field. Well, actually, yeah, that's... Yes, that's true, but the Buddha, when the Buddha awakens, that immediately okay, creates, creates the field. Yeah, the <clears throat> awakening of a Buddha creates a field of kindness and generosity. And, you know, and in, in each of us in our own way, as we settle into sustained zazen practice, whatever we wake up to, it's reflected in some way in the world around us. Not to say that it necessarily fixes on pure things. But yes, in the traditional teaching, there are pure Buddha fields and there are impure Buddha fields. So my question is about attention, because it uses the word attention in that line. So my question is twofold. <clears throat> Can you swap attention with intention in that line? Can you say, depending on the attention of the beings in that field, could you also say, depending on the intentions of the beings in that field. Yeah, good, thank you. So yes, part of the point of this is exactly that a Buddha precipitates good intentions, just like the Malakirti uh, in the city of Vichavi. People saw him and they wanted to be like that and they wanted to help others and they wanted to be awake. So yeah, uh, attention and intention are very related. When we pay attention to something, it actually transforms it. So again, I was talking about how there are no objects because everything is alive. And when we are aware, so awareness itself is transformative. Our awareness of the difficulties around us families and friends and city and you know uh, helps support awakening and bodhicitta in others. So yeah, they're 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 so yes they are very much related. And that that was the second part of what I wanted to ask. If can you speak a little more on the difference between attention and intention according to Buddhist thought or or is it too esoteric? It's not that it's too esoteric. Um, I mean, they they work together. Our intention, you know, we have our intention to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Our uh, atten 
produces more intention when you're attending to things and you're willing to see the suffering, the difficulties of people or animals or rivers or lakes, you know, then then, uh, that develops intention to help with them. But the fundamental intention is, from this perspective, is just complete awakening. So how do we support, how do we give attention to beings who are caught up in thinking to, to help them Yeah, so they're introverted. Thank you. Thank you. Other questions, comments? Hi. Hi. So when you told the story about the big toe and and the way people visualize everything as fields of jewels, um, you know, you use the word psychedelic before, um, and I think you said that you know, this is a psychedelic parts of it. Well, yeah. parts of the Vimala well, Kirti, what I was going to say and didn't is as we get further into the Vimala Kirti Sutra, not only is he very skillful in all these different realms, he's kind of a trickster and he's kind of a magician and he kind of he, he upsets our usual sense of things. So, uh, you know, in some sense, maybe the Vimala Kirti Sutra is psychedelic, but I say that more often about the Flower Ornament Sutra. Yeah, I say that about the Flower Ornament Sutra. But anyway, that made me wonder, you know, that image of that idea, you know, I've been, I've read Michael Pollan and and this, this, the psychedelics, and and there's been some sort of, you know, rehabilitation lately of for therapeutic uses of psychedelic drugs. Thank Buddha, yeah. And, and yeah, and I, I so I, I was just wondering if you comment on that and and the way the text can be psychedelic. I mean, um that you know breaking of your normal vision of the world and, and what you know what are like more or less therapeutic means of making that happen. Well, this inconceivability is the way it's spoken of in the Malakirti Sutra. That we that are and, and this is about our usual conceptions of the world. And I can get into a little bit of the chemistry and physics of all this, but you know, basically, um, oh gosh, uh, you know, I, I use the word psychedelic because before I knew about Buddhism, I, I had this intensive practice of use of psychedelics when I was very young. Um, and it's not that I recommend it to anyone now, but I don't regret any of my uh, experiences. Uh, and, and yes, I'm happy to hear that now uh, psychologists and people are using it in a, in a controlled, helpful way. And I believe it is helpful in the same way that sutras are helpful and that sazen is helpful and that the Dharma is helpful, and practice is helpful to unsettle our usual ways of thinking and seeing and hearing and speaking and tasting and touching and all that. So um, to get beyond our conventions is part of what Manakirti was about too. And he entered into all the realms, the conventional realms, and used them and became the most skillful in them 
for the sake of waking people up. So that's a little bit. Oh, David Ray, Jim. Uh, thank you for that, Tugin. Um, I'd like to ask about the, the humor of the Vimalakirti Sutra, uh, which is sometimes making you laugh out loud. And it's also really mean. It's really satirical. Um, and uh, the non-Mahayana Buddhists or the, the, the disciples really come in for some nasty, nasty satire. That moment at the end of the of the big toe miracle, when, when the disciples, the, the disciple followers, instead of saying, oh, now I see that the world is really a bejeweled ocean of bliss, they say, damn it, I knew it, I knew it all along, everything is impermanent. And that really is sending up, you know, <laughs> um, old school Buddhist teaching in a in a in a way that is that, that's funny and also really surprising. Um, so I wonder if you might say something about that too. Yeah, um, yeah. This is a very entertaining and funny sutra, scripture, um, and we'll get to some things. That when Imalakirti's um, goddess friend, uh, the chapter her is, she really unsettles the uh, the disciples and does some really far out stuff. Uh, and I don't want to, I don't want to give any spoil too many spoilers in it, but. Um, <coughs> um, in some sense, you're right, though. This is, the Malakirti Sutra is, in some sense, earlier primitive Mahayana. Which is partly why Dogen didn't like the sutra. I didn't say that to the practice council when they said, when they said let's do the Malakirti Sutra. But anyway, Dogen was not so fond of the Malakirti. But that's okay. I don't agree with everything Dogen said either. But... Um, but the reason is that it is very so. The Vimalakirti Sutra is upholding the vision and view and practice of bodhisattvas, and so it's it's early Mahayana, and it's comparing the bodhisattvas to the arhat disciples, who are personally awakened. Who uh, and this isn't really I don't know if this is true historically, but one way of seeing those teachings is that they were concerned with personal awakening, not with um, the world at large or society. That's not true of Theravada Buddhists. That's the main form of Buddhism in um, South Asia, in Sri Lanka and uh, Burma and Thailand and Laos and Cambodia (coughs) and Theravada, the teachings of the elder. But in practice, those people are very kind and and helpful. And so um, in the Lotus Sutra, which is some other practice period sometime, uh, in the Lotus Sutra it says that all is just one vehicle and that the that arhats actually are just being bodhisattvas for people who uh, think arhats are cool, getting them into the practice. So, uh, so in that sense, I could say that the Vimalakirti Sutra is earlier, or, you know, I don't know, uh, primitive Mahayana, as opposed to the Lotus Sutra, which is Ekayana, one vehicle. Everybody's included, even, you know. But, you know, in, in some sense, that's true here, too, because um, the disciples who are, the, uh, who are uh, 
chastised or whatever in this sutra are examples for us of, of things. So, uh, so I you know have to see the Vimalakirti sutra as That response probably confused you a bit more. <laughs> I identify with both. It's, it's, it's fun to pretend to be a god and laugh at laugh at mortals, and and I'm a mortal shedding tears over impermanence. So it's both. Good. Other comments? Uh, I just want to see. If there was. I thought I saw a hand up on the on the screen. Paul just raised his. Perhaps he can go after Jen. Okay, and then Jeff, I think, has his hand up. So, uh, okay, Jeff, and then Paul. Um, I got kind of caught when you said uh, the Malakirki was admired by the rulers because he taught them about the impermanence of their position. And um, I don't think such a person would be admired uh, today in the United States. Um, well, maybe we need to try it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, theoretically, they know, or they, politicians, know that their positions are impermanent. But... In reality, they would never let them go until they were forced. Right. So, you know, we have term limits in some realms. You know, where do we have term limits for presidents, not for Supreme Court justices? Anyway. Not for Chicago mayors. Not, not, not for Chicago mayors. Well, there's a, a, an important election happening <laughs> next Tuesday. Please, uh, this coming Tuesday, please vote for mayor. Anyway. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so they, they are these these are rulers who live in a realm where Shakyamuni Buddha is hanging out. Mm-hmm. So they all respected Buddha because he was he was amazing. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew. You know, imagine if the Dalai Lama was living in Chicago full time, mm-hmm. and everybody you know could see his kindness and humor and gentleness and wisdom. You know. Then you know the, the politicians around here might see things differently. I don't know. I can't answer that question for you. But uh, anyway, Buddha fields are complicated. So, uh, Paul, did you have something? Yeah, I did. Um, I was curious. So it sounded like Shariputra was sort of raising the point that. Uh, you know, how can, how can bad things happen in a good Buddha field? And it seemed like the Buddha with the big toe kind of demonstrated like, well, we could just see, we could go into the land of, you know, gems and splendor and um, everything can look great, but instead we're going to allow there to be these sort of like, I guess, layers on top of that. So you, you can practice with that. And was the, in this case, it seemed like the Buddha was kind of saying like, you know, I, like I could 
make the world a place where no bad things happen in a good Buddha field, but then how would you practice or something? And like, is that kind of, I don't know if you could draw that out a little bit, but that seems to be kind of like the first time I've heard of Buddha saying like, I'm allowing something difficult um, to continue um, when it doesn't have to. Well, another main theme of this sutra is non-duality. So the same Buddha field where there is all this cruelty and suffering is sometimes called samsara, around of suffering, is also, from a Buddhist perspective, from a Bodhisattva perspective, the realm of uh, awakening, of nirvana. So it's, it's hard to see that. And certainly hearing that, that teaching is dangerous because you might think, well, then I don't have to bother with taking care of the world of suffering and all the difficulties. But um, this is subtle, this teaching of non-duality. And there's also the idea, which I think something you said, Paul, sort of uh, alluded to, that um, from some perspective, I've talked about this before, and I think we're going over time. That's the schedule. Uh, maybe there's no going over time. But, uh, here. Oh, oh, we're, oh good. So, yeah, we're not so much over time, but there is this idea that, um, and this was pre- prevalent um, back in Dogen's time for some uh, other schools, and um, my friend Joanna Macy talks about this, that there are, you know, again, assuming that there are Many, many Buddha fields all over, all over this galaxy and other galaxies. And you know, we don't know how to think about this, but anyway, there are bodhisattvas from other Buddha fields who are right now lined up, just waiting for the chance to be born here in this place and time. Because this place and time is when bodhisattvas are most needed, when they can have the most impact. So we're all lucky to be, you know, that the world is the world is wonderful, you know. Hogetsu was talking about birdsong. And there's there's so much that's wonderful in this world. And at the same time, there's all this suffering. So uh, Bodhisattvas really want to be born here because whatever, and, and so we're lucky to be here because whatever we do that is helpful and kind can make a big difference now. So uh, maybe I'll just leave us with that part. But uh, Jeff, do you have a comment or question? I see your hand up. Or is that just a floating head? Going once, going twice. 
Last one, last comment or question, anyone? Okay. Well, thank you all for being here. Whether you're here uh, online or here in person in our Lincoln Square Center, and um, yeah, so there's sort of volunteerity poses lots of questions for us. And it's a very rich Buddha field that he's <laughs> suggesting for us. And I don't think we have to take sides about whether the world is wonderful or terrible. Just how do we take care of what's in front of us?